Hello and welcome to How Do You Solve a Problem Like, the podcast for anyone who is interested in the big problems that we are facing today in society, but more importantly, for those who believe that there are exciting solutions out there and want to hear about innovative pioneering work being done by social purpose businesses. So whether you're new to social enterprise or a veteran, we hope that you join us each week as we tackle a new issue and meet entrepreneurs who share their experiences and learning. This week, how do you solve a problem like loneliness? I was just thinking about whether I've ever been asked if I was lonely and what a personal question that is. And then reflecting on what I would answer if someone had asked me that. Have I been lonely? I think I have been lonely. It feels like an incredibly personal question. It's almost like the last taboo, isn't it? It's like we can all admit to being depressed, anxious, stressed. But to be lonely, it still has that sort of... Something wrong with you. Yeah, but it's such a human experience and something that affects people of all ages from all walks of life. And for the next half hour or so, we're going to be exploring some of the ways people are responding to what has been described as the 21st century loneliness epidemic through social purpose business. We'll be hearing from entrepreneurs who are doing just that. People like Alex Smith from the Cares family, the group of local community networks of young professionals and older neighbours hanging out together. The first step is to not consider the complexities, complications and challenges that you will have if you rip this idea large. Because if you think about that sort of stuff, you're probably never going to tackle that first barrier in the first place. And also, new to the game, is another Alex, Alex Hoskin, who set up the Chatty Café scheme just a year ago. But it's already spread as far as Australia, Gibraltar and has the backing of a mega high street chain, Costa Coffee. I didn't want to mention the word loneliness anywhere. I needed it to be really positive and just more about bringing people together. And I just thought nobody's ever going to go and sit at a table for lonely people. My name is Millie Charles. I'm a freelance radio reporter and podcast producer, and I'm also a fledgling social entrepreneur. In short, my social enterprise idea is to create podcasts with purpose and work with people who are changing the world and document their stories in audio. And actually, that's pretty much what we're doing right now, which works quite neatly. And my name is Anna Markland. I am a venture manager at Unlimited, a foundation who find and support social entrepreneurs like Millie and like a lot of other people we'll be meeting throughout the series. I'm here to hear from the front lines and also understand what Unlimited can be doing to better help the people that are tackling these problems. In the last few weeks, whilst I've been making this podcast and out meeting people who are tackling loneliness, I've been just surrounded by this idea of loneliness. Ghost loneliness. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because the government are doing huge initiatives. There's some real right. big things going on around loneliness. It's being seen as like the public health crisis number one. Government just published a strategy paper on loneliness and it's interesting that it's being taken so seriously. It's often a personal experience, so it's interesting it's being talked about at a national level. So since I've immersed myself in this subject, I've been absolutely amazed at just how many different approaches there are to this issue. And whilst I've been researching this episode, it just seems that everywhere I look, there are people finding interesting and unique solutions to loneliness. One of the more unusual solutions I found was in Japan, where you can rent friends, boyfriends, girlfriends and even entire families by the hour and one of the one and what's particularly popular is the rent an uncle service. 
Yeah, I had a look into this once you told me about it because I was intrigued and it seems to be a really interesting idea where it's redefining the roles that these men have in Japanese culture and also allowing people there who might not feel as liberated to talk about their own experiences to have someone to connect to. And there were a couple of uncles that looked really great. One of them could teach me the ukulele. Oh, oh that's nice. <laughs> Apparently 10,000 men have applied. So this isn't actually a niche or novelty scheme. This is something that there's a real need for. People globally seem to be suffering from a real lack of meaningful connection. And especially in this case, it seems they're missing that intergenerational dynamic. So much so that they're actually willing to pay for it. And the fact that it's so popular means there is a very real need for it. So someone who's working in this space of fostering meaningful intergenerational connections is Alex Smith, the founder of The Cares Family, the group of local community networks of young professionals and older neighbours hanging out and helping one another in this rapidly changing city that we live in. And they're also around in Manchester and Liverpool. He's absolutely incredible. I had a great time going and visiting him at one of the clubs that he set up in Camden. This is what happened. I'm in Camden Town in North London. It's a very wet and drizzly and thoroughly miserable day. Uh, It's a Saturday afternoon and I've come to visit Alex Smith, who has set up the Cares family, which is a network of communities, really. started here in North London and it's now moved to Manchester and it's growing rapidly. But anyway, we'll find out all about that in a minute. I've been welcomed with a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits and very quickly felt very at home. There's a real friendly, warm, relaxed atmosphere here, just like family. It's an equal mix of older people and young professionals who are all local to this area. And once a month they come here to this community centre and meet for the afternoon and share stories about their lives based around a particular theme. This month is a Desert Island Disc special. So everyone's bought or chosen their very favourite piece of music of all time. And they share the reasons why they've chosen that piece with the group. And we sit around over tea and coffee and play music and chat. Um, I've lived in this centre all my life. This is Lily, who's been coming to this club since the very beginning. You get a chance to sing, you know. I like singing. Yeah. And have you chosen a favourite piece of music for today? It's an old song, Because of You. Because of you, my life is now worthwhile and I can smile because of you. So after all the music had been played and the stories shared, I sat down with the founder of the Cares family, Alex Smith. I always felt like I was a part of the local community, having grown up around here. But what I'd seen through working in politics in the previous two or three years before setting up North London Cares was that not everybody is part of a community. When I was a council candidate on election day 2010, I met a man. He was 84. His name was Fred. And he told me he hadn't been out of his house for three months and hadn't spoken to anyone for three months. I offered to wheel him if he was comfortable down the road so that he could vote. And while we were out, he told me that he'd love to get a haircut. The next day I went back and wheeled him again in his wheelchair down the road to the local barber shop and learned about his life. And it turned out that we had lots in common. 
I'd felt through that experience that I had a new friend and somebody who could teach me things that nobody else in my life could teach me. I felt closer to the heritage of my local community. Places like North London are changing faster than ever before. New apartment blocks are going up all over the place. We're all attached to our phones. People are arriving from all over the world. Those are some of the things that make our big cities amazing, but they can also leave people like me and like Fred feeling a bit isolated, left behind and a bit anonymous in a big city. So I had a bit of a light bulb moment and I thought there must be a lot of people like Fred and a lot of people like me. Let's create a mechanism to bring these two groups together. The most powerful stories are both personal and political. You know, that story about meeting Fred and how we've both been isolated from one another is about economics, structures and systems, and it's about politics, and it is about inequalities, and it's about health, and it's about welfare, and it's about business. It's about all of those things. And at its heart, it's about humanity. Exactly. Everything that we do still focuses on the relationships between people. You know, you can't solve a social problem like loneliness with a medical or a clinical solution. It has to be a social solution. The word social doesn't mean a service of government. The word social means people being with people. So it started off with you, with this great idea uh, from a chance encounter, and how did you go from that to, to where you are now? The first step is probably to not consider the numbers of complexities and complications and challenges that you will have if you writ this idea large, because if you think about that sort of stuff, you're probably never going to tackle that first barrier in the first place. We really snowballed. I got two of my best mates who grew up in the same area and seen the same issues as me, invited them to be directors of a company limited by guarantee, and we registered North London Cares. And then the key thing is that bit by bit, we brought new employees in every opportunity we could, and they brought their own ideas. It's kind of a myth that I've conceptualized this whole thing myself because I absolutely haven't. The brilliant people that have surrounded me, whether the trustees, the funders, the staff team, the volunteers, the older people, all of them have brought their ideas and said, you should try this or you should try that. And I think the key thing for social entrepreneurs getting into this journey in the first instance is that you have to listen to other people. And in particular, you have to listen to the people that you're trying to bring in or connect. In our case, that's the younger and older people in big cities. How easy was it for you to make the decision to walk away from politics and move into this kind of unknown venture that presumably didn't have any clear income streams? How did that happen? Number one, there is no more unknown venture than politics. And that was always a bridge for me to doing something that I cared about and that I could make a unique difference to. Had I known how difficult it would have been over the next eight years, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but I didn't think it would grow to more than 10 of my mates living in the local area, uh, hanging out with 10 local older people. So I was able to think this is something I'll do on the side. This is something I'll do on the weekend. I think this is a really common experience with a lot of social entrepreneurs. You follow your nose, you do what you're passionate about, you do what you love. And if you can find a way to make a difference through that work and make it sustainable, then you're onto a good thing. 
The idea has a, like a beautiful simplicity to it, but how to make that a kind of financially sustainable venture in a world full of yeah. cuts to community services. We were told at the very beginning of setting up North London Cares that the best way for you to become sustainable is to develop a model that is attractive to commissioners in public health and in local councils and in national government. And we set up in 2011. That was the beginning of the cuts. I just thought that was bad advice. We weren't going to take that approach, number one, because we thought it was less sustainable, but number two, because we wanted to do what we wanted to do, which is about community activity. And if we start doing what the local council tells us to do, all of a sudden it becomes about their public health priorities and their strategic priorities. So we've had to develop a model where we use our network. So we now across the CARES family have 5,000 older people, 5,000 younger people, big email lists to inspire people through stories, to run marathons and raise money for us, to host events for us. It's using your assets and the people to build a movement and say, if you relate to these stories, share that story and please do something to support the people who are involved in those stories. And now it's nearly somewhere between 40 and 50% of our income across the board, and we've just gone over a million pounds per year, is raised through those people, through the volunteers, voluntarily taking on activities to raise money for us. And that, as well as expressing our values, I think is more sustainable than taking a commissioning approach. So this is maybe a bit personal, but certainly it's well documented that actually the life of an entrepreneur is a very lonely one, ironically. Have you found that? Yeah. I work often 7am to 11pm. There have been months where I've done that every single day of several months. Within my team, it's hard for everybody to understand or relate to the specific work that I'm doing. And, you know, I've got an amazing board and good support and great friends and people around me. But in that context, you need to be really intentional about continuing to do the things that you love. I'm going for dinner with my best mates tonight. I go to the football. I go to gigs with people who I love and have known a long time. I think that's really important. Schedule your personal life before you schedule your work life. Those are the things where you find joy and therefore they make you better, more productive in your day job as well. What have you learned about tackling big social issues in your journey with the CARES family? Well, okay, a few things. One, it takes a long time to fix an entrenched social issue because they are layered by other wider social determinants. Think about educational inequality. That isn't just because schools are underfunded. That's because there's a class system in this country. It's because there is inequity along racial lines and gender lines. It is because of untold layered factors and problems that we've got in a society. So number one, it takes time. Number two, the answer to so many of those social problems is almost always community. If you are a young person in need of access to employment or education opportunities, it's still who you know as well as what you know that's going to count. And therefore, connect yourself to other people who are going to take the sorts of steps that you want to be able to take. So role models are fundamentally important. And I think the other thing I'd say is about agency. Everybody has the power to do something in their own community. You don't need to wait for permission because it's your community. I think Alex could probably solve all the problems in the world, given enough time. It's really interesting, his idea that community and human connection is the kind of solution to almost all social ills Mm. when you boil it down. I think there's interesting comments there from Alex around the role of government. People might not want the government to be delivering this and they might not want to have it as a service. 
being kind of treated for loneliness. Yeah, totally. It's people being with people and Mm. that sort of being an authentic, um, organic, real thing. Which I think is why social purpose business is interesting because it tends to sit across those boundaries. So it is rooted quite often in a community or at least comes from an understanding of your local community and your holistic needs, but equally is still motivated by social purpose and therefore is accountable to that community in a way that maybe regular business isn't, in a way that government maybe can't have that legitimacy sometimes. On that point around technology, things like Facebook are notionally designed to bring us together. So it's interesting that maybe they haven't achieved that. But also the way our lives are now, often we're working more casually, we're we're not having families as young. All these sorts of things can lead to a feeling of being kind of disconnected and not really knowing where your people are, I guess. There have been quite a few apps that I've come across that are not dating apps, friendship apps. And there was one called Huggle, set up by two women. One had moved to London from Russia for her career and the Mm. other had moved to London from a small town for her career. So they're both young women in their 20s and they both found themselves feeling really quite lonely and struggling to make friends in the new city. So they made this app based on the locations that you've visited and the places that you've been. You could see anyone else who'd sort of checked in there and then like go for a coffee and hang out. And it did so well that they sold it for a large undisclosed amount basically earlier this year. So weren't available for interview. So they did pretty well out of that loneliness solution. Interesting. Uh, And there's another one that's just come out quite similarly called Drink. I think that was set up by someone who was travelling on her own, feeling kind of lonely, wishing she could approach people in bars without seeming weird. So it's interesting that we need technology to do that real world stuff now that maybe, I don't know, maybe people did naturally in the past. Yeah, I guess that also makes me think around whether those apps can only function if we keep having this problem and this is genuinely a kind of an open question around are they invested in solving it and that makes me reflect on social enterprise and people who are really driven to kind of fix something or to kind of really inspire communities to help themselves and whether these apps do genuinely do that. So it's time to introduce our second entrepreneur, also called Alex, also tackling loneliness, also very much focused on real world community based activity. Alex set up the Chatty Cafe scheme about a year ago. I met Alex in a cafe, appropriately, and this is her describing the unlikely situation she was in when inspiration struck. Can you tell me a little bit about what was happening at that time and and kind of leading up to you having this sort of flash of inspiration? Basically, I got pregnant while I was doing a master's unexpectedly, so my kind of career didn't go to plan. When I had my little boy, Henry, I didn't like have a job to go back to as such, so I was looking for a job and I was feeling a bit bit fed up being on my own with a baby a lot and we'd just go around the shops in Oldham and it was just in a supermarket cafe that I, I was just kind of looking around and noticed an elderly lady on her own on one table and on another table a guy probably in his 20s with additional needs and a carer just looking around the room not talking to each other and then me and Henry on another table and I just thought it would have maybe brightened all of our days if we could have sat together. I just knew from that moment it would be great if I could somehow try and influence cafe culture so I started to think about the idea of having a table where customers could sit if they were happy to talk to other customers 
I knew I'd need some kind of poster to advertise this table and to designate the table. So I got a local company to help me design that. It was quite clear that I wanted it to appeal to everybody. I didn't want to mention the word loneliness anywhere because I just felt that was way too heavy. I needed it to be really positive and more about bringing people together. And I just thought nobody's ever going to go and sit at a table for lonely people. I think it's really interesting both Alex's were inspired by the personal experience and that started their social business from this. I think that gives them real understanding of the issue, lets them talk with authenticity. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we support also have a similar journey into social enterprise. It just comes from seeing something, experiencing living it and then wanting to make a difference. And both of them just didn't think too much about it. They just Mm. went, oh, maybe I could do something about this. Hold on, I'm going to give it a go. That seems like really key to both of them, actually, that if they'd (laughs) known what it entailed, they possibly wouldn't have even started. The idea is that it's just part of that cafe culture, you know, that so like anybody that goes into a cafe, they just get used to that that's just part of being in a cafe, that they have one of these tables. There's so many groups out there that separate society, mums and babies, people with disabilities, elderly people, young people, and it's like, I just really want to try and break that down a bit and throw everyone together. So from having that initial idea, how did you go about getting that first table established and and what were people's reactions as you started to kind of put your idea out into the world? When I got that first poster done, it was just a case of going round to places with me and Henry and just asking them, would you be up for doing this? I built myself up that it was going to be a bit of a salesy thing and I was like, oh God, this is going to be awful. But actually they were like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. What was the first cafe that took you up on the offer? It was a Costa Coffee in Oldham and the lady was really, really nice there and she got really behind it. How was your relationship with them developed? About a month in, I just thought one night, right, I'm just going to email a load of big companies and see if anyone responds, not expecting they would. So just sent like a load of emails to like Starbucks, Costa, all Sainsbury's, all these different places to see if they would be interested in getting involved. And Costa replied to me the next morning. I think it was about by nine in the morning. I had a really long response from this lady called Jodie saying, you know, oh, that's such a lovely idea. So basically we had a chat and over the course of like the next year, we'd just ring each other every now and then and she'd say, oh, you know, people at head office have heard of it on their own right and they're mentioning it and kind of talking about it. She went to the campaign to end loneliness conference last year and really enjoyed it and got a lot from it. And she just said, I'm going to keep plugging away at this and let's see if anything will happen. And then a few months ago, she said, right, yeah, I've got the go-ahead to roll it out. So they piloted it in 25 stores and then decided that they were going to try it nationally. After they'd done the pilot, they put it out there to stores to say, does anyone want to do this? And they had a phenomenal response. Then it was the best response they've had from the stores in terms of people working in the stores wanting to get into something. I think it's absolutely fantastic that a high street shop like Costa has been able to get involved with this and have been inspired by this mission. I think, Millie, you said that there have been other big businesses that are also interested in this space. Yeah, particularly the co-op. The co-op seem to be doing absolutely massive things. In fact, um, I read yesterday that they have actually raised £6.7 million pounds to tackle oh loneliness and they're distributing it to community projects. And that's just another indicator, really, that this is the way forward, that this isn't a niche thing at all. I believe all businesses will have purpose embedded in them. 
We've always had people doing pro bono work and corporate social responsibility and stuff, but it's becoming even more mainstream with high street brands getting right on board and putting it at the front of what they do. It's not only that people want to be seen to do that, but I think people really are starting to feel that they want to do the best they can to make the world a better place without sounding too cheesy. And profit just isn't enough. One of the difficulties I've found, though, is that the cafes that I first went to, there wasn't that investment, really, from them. If someone goes in and offers you something for free and you go, yeah, that's a good idea, OK, doesn't mean you're then invested to actually do it. So what I've found since is that now I get cafes to join through the website. They pay £10 a year, so they're actually paying their own money. They're somehow much more invested in it and therefore more behind it and more inclined to actually do what they say they're going to do. So that's really interesting. So by creating an income stream, you've almost actually added value to the work that you do in a sense. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like psychology, I suppose. I mean, someone said to me there's a massive difference between something someone gets for free to something they even have to pay a penny for because it just, you know, that action of paying for something, you, you only pay for something if you want it. I found that that's really helped. And actually, since I've started charging for it, I've had a massive uptake, which is weird because obviously when I first started, I was really quite anxious and nervous about charging £10 because when it's something you've done yourself, you, you feel like, oh, you don't know what you should be charging, you don't know if people are going to buy it. I've now put it to £10 a year to try and keep it all sustainable, really. But yeah, it's been brilliant. You know, people have just really took it up. So this is really interesting and I totally relate to this. She found it really difficult to charge money or to kind of mix the idea of making profit or making a business sustainable with the social purpose that she was trying to marry that with. It's like... Shouldn't doing good be enough? Yeah, like, shouldn't doing good be enough? Should should it be enough to do it for the love? And being someone who comes from the creative industries and now, like, marrying the creative industries with sort of social purpose work, it's like both of those places are places where you're, like, constantly told you should be just grateful to do the lovely work you're doing. And absolutely you are and it's but it is it's really difficult and I think a lot of people struggle with that idea of like how much should I be charging should I even be making money for this am I exploiting a social issue in order to for my own gain you know I think that's really interesting and the mixing mission with money is again a problem that a lot of the entrepreneurs we support come across and some of them worry about being able to pay themselves a wage they kind of feel that that shouldn't be a goal that they have If you aren't able to pay yourself a wage and you aren't able to do this sustainably, then what that means is that you won't be able to do that for a very long time or you'll only be able to do it on the weekends. And that means that your impact, the impact you're able to achieve is very small, very local. Whereas actually, if you set up a business that allows you to employ others, allows you to do that yourself, then as you can see from Alex in the way that he's been able to create lots of offshoots of his model that's given him a far bigger reach than if he had just kept up with him and his mates doing it whenever they could. And also he's employing now 28 people. So if you embed sort of business into your purpose and purpose into your business, it's the best of both worlds, I guess. But actually, I suppose if you think about it, I wouldn't have any problem if I was working in a shoe shop or a bar in receiving a wage, yet here I am trying to do something that kind of has a positive impact in the world and I'm feeling bad for taking money for it. So it's a bit weird, our ideas around money sometimes. They're a little bit contradictory, I suppose. One last point around accountability. 
when Alex made people pay to be part of this chatty cafe scheme, they took it more seriously. And I think that maybe it made her take it more seriously as well. Or I've certainly seen when you do enter into that relationship, it's a different relationship. Maybe it comes with greater scrutiny or maybe it just comes with the fact that you know that someone values this. If they're prepared to pay for it, there is genuine value in what you're creating. And I think that gives you a great sense of you are doing the right thing. I always knew from day one that I wanted it to be scalable because I thought if I want to try and influence like cafe culture, it has to grow and grow. And I knew that for that to happen, my involvement had to be at certain points, like at the, at the, to get the cafe involved, to do the kind of marketing brand inside. Someone said to me a few weeks ago, actually, that often the people that start something are not necessarily the best people to then take that forward to grow it. And I thought that really rung true with me because I thought, Yeah, I know I can get something off the ground, but maybe I'm not the best person to grow that. I don't really know where it's going to go and whether I'll be the one to take it there. What have you learnt about tackling big social issues along the way? The scheme is a 21st century approach to reducing loneliness. And I just think there needs to be like more innovative ways to tackle issues adapted to, you know, our lives. And what do you think you've learnt about being an entrepreneur? I don't think I've set out to be an entrepreneur, but I think I've always had um, a bit of a different way of viewing things. I think I've always had that instinct to try things. And I think I don't have that fear of failure. You can just try things and if they don't work, it doesn't matter, you've tried it. Thinking about my final reflections, I like that we talked about money and that we were brave enough to do that. It's interesting that both of these entrepreneurs are thinking about their revenue models. So I hope that inspires people that there is a way to mix business with social purpose. I've learned so much actually in this episode and particularly I think Alex's approach to fundraising was a real eye-opener for me. I work in a small charity part-time and I'm definitely taking that back to them and I'm going to try and like inspire some fundraising activities from our volunteers and our trustees because that seems like a great way to go because we totally rely on commissioning at the moment which you just never know when that's going to be pulled and and Mm. that gave him a real autonomy I think. That's all we have time for this week. If you want to find out any more details, all the links to the people that we interviewed and the businesses that we mentioned are down below. So please check them out, leave us comments, and we hope you tune in next time.